Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Alice Gribben is a poet and essayist. She has a substack, Notes of an Esthete, and has also contributed recently to several publications, including Tablet with a piece called The Great Debasement, which I read with um, immense interest, and uh, it was sort of what, what prompted this discussion. So I'm just going to offer a, a slight preamble um, to this conversation, which is about largely about museums and cultural institutions, which is that I, um, you know, as anybody who follows me on Twitter will know, I'm often complaining that here in New York, the cultural, the culture industry, the cultural institutions have remained the most um, insanely COVID vigilant of any, practically any institutions except for higher education, which is, you know, more or less the same, an extension of the same realm. And, you know, this means that even though you don't have to show vaccine passes to, uh, do anything uh, for the most part, except, you know, the exception is like, if you want to go to the opera, you still have to show a vaccine pass, right? Um, and also the, you know, the, the masking is still um, generally enforced um, in museums and other cultural institutions in a way that it really isn't much of anywhere else. So, you know, one thing that coming across um, your essay, Alice, The Great Debasement, that sort of occurred to me about this is that you know, there, there's something that this COVID hypervigilance has in common with the kind of sensibility that you're describing that's overtaken cultural institutions. So the first would be, I mean, I'd sort of divide this into three parts. The first would be a kind of fear that, that the, the sensibility is one of fear of unregulated contagion, right? And this is um, happening not only at the level of uh, thinking about the virus, but of aesthetic experience itself, as well as a kind of heightened sense of moral contagion. A second point would be a sort of exagger a, te a tendency to exaggerate harms um, and to kind of um, see, you know, for, for any kind of transaction, you have to be concerned about who the victims of that might be and, um, you know, tend to uh, focus heavily on the harms that might be done. Then the third would be a deference to experts which in this, I mean, in the context both of what we'll be talking about and in the context of COVID tends to be a certain kind of expert who's basically a kind of moralizer, you know, who's not merely a kind of, you know, neutral subject of knowledge, but is instead a kind of, um, a, a kind of moral arbiter. So anyway, that's just my slight preamble with that out of the way. Um, thanks for coming on. And, you know, I think Again, our, our subject is basically museums, and perhaps you could start out by explaining how you, you know, when you first started noted, noticing these phenomena and how you sort of became interested in the subject. Um, or, and and is, has it, you know, I'm, I'm curious kind of how long-term of the development you see this as, because, you know, I think there's some way in, what, in which it might be relatively recent or at least heightened in recent years, but, you know, that, that there may also be a kind of longer-term story here. Yeah, 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I first, I just I want to quickly pick up on this the to stay on um, the COVID question for a moment. Um, your third point about this de uh, deference to experts is funny. I uh, I have quite a lot to say in the essay about these these experts and um, something that has struck me since writing the essay, um, just reflecting on it a bit more is the extent to which, and having heard from a few people as well um, who, who run in museum circles, um, just how many of the experts really aren't experts? I mean, this is, this is something about COVID too. We're getting to this point where like, the scientists like are doing junk science and the, the people who say trust the science um, are not looking at the latest science. Um, so even the experts um, are um, just constantly undermining themselves and their, their so-called expertise. I mean, they have the credentials, um, but they don't even seem to be uh, trustworthy when it comes to um, really basic facts. Um, I think that's true for a lot of scientists, and it's been um, a, um, a shocking discovery for a lot of us. I include myself in that, living through the last few years and just discovering the extent to which um, these, a lot of these scientists are, are not very objective and, and seem to do junk science or ideological science. Um, but in the museums, too, the the... I, uh, in the essay, uh, I wouldn't say review, but I write up two big recent museum shows, uh, both of which brought in experts. And funnily enough, um, a number of the people they brought in and the, cu the lead curator of one of the shows herself are not art historians. They are, they're artists. Um, they're people who maybe have um, master's degrees in this or that, but they don't have um, training in, in the history of art um, or, in, or in history. Um, I've, I've since heard that, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of hirings and firings and retirements in museums the way there is in higher ed right now. And there are people getting top, top jobs at museums as curators, as, um, you know, uh, heads of collections um, who don't have art history degrees, have like African-American studies PhDs or have like creative writing PhDs. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to make that point that um, the, the experts, sometimes they're not even credentialed experts. <laughs> they have different kinds of credentials. Um, and so there's, uh, and they're, right, and so it tends to involve them this kind of performance of expertise or something like that, where, uh, I mean, in some ways, um, I, I mean, a larger point I, I think this is, is worth making here is that, you know, perhaps the, the broader way to define what we're, what we're talking about, which I think is true in universities as well as in, in, at museums and other cultural institutions is there's kind of broad crisis of authority, right? What, 
what gives uh, what gives these institutions a kind of authority and legitimacy, and then what um, what gives the people who are uh, put in charge of them a kind of authority and legitimacy. So obviously, our you know the sort of sense of that has been has been shifting. Um, you know, it, it it's I mean, in terms of the COVID stuff, you can sort of see versions of that as well, where you know, uh, uh, there are quite a number of people who are, you know, highly eminent who in, in various relevant fields who were basically, you know, um, framed as, I mean, by mainstream discourse and censored and, and kind of, uh, you know, removed from any public discussion, even, you know, despite their credentials. And then on the other hand, you have people who are extreme, you know, who, who have extremely kind of soft credentials who are constantly given platforms because they, you know, offer kind of orthodox positions and, you know, have some kind of initials next to their name that makes them sound important. Yeah. Um, like the, the MPH being perhaps the, the degree that's, um, that's gained the most kind of, you know, um, status in the past few years. Uh, but, you know, so I, I this sort of crisis of authority is, I think, related to this larger question. I mean, that this we we also, you know, mentioned as something to possibly discuss this article that came out in the Nation, which is called "Are Museums in Crisis?" Which, you know, <laughs> the answer is the well, answer the, seems that, clearly yes. Yeah, um, that no, the headline, the head is, um, and of course, you know, it, it might have been written by a. A copy editor and editor not the author but it, it comes from somewhere in the essay that the title is agents of malaise oh right yeah um, yeah yeah because because their museums are so beleaguered poor museums yeah. yeah so right so let's let me put that to you though i mean are museums in crisis and i mean where, where, where do you see this crisis if i mean i, I mean, assume the answer uh, on some level um, where do you see this coming from and, you know, what's, what's, I mean, what are the sort of threads of this history of how we got to this point? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's complicated. And the reason why I found this Nation article that you're referring to really quite dissatisfying um, for a number of reasons, but um, in these terms, uh, I, I think the the writer does a really, really poor job of um, explaining what's going on in museums and why museums are in trouble. Um, he focuses um, uh, for probably two thirds of the article on very, very recent um, reckonings, I'd say. He doesn't use that word, but what he's really describing or um, kind of listing uh, detailing are some of the operational um, uh, crises that have been occurring within these institutions. And uh, anyone who knows much about higher education would recognize, again, um, some of these sorts of um, problems that have been beleaguering the institution. So um, you have uh, you know, there's staffing crises, union busting going on in these museums, which, you know, is really bad. People should care about it. And workers in museums should be demanding, you know, 
better rights as workers. I, I totally support that kind of stuff. There's been all kinds of blow-ups in, in museums over recent years. Um, similarly, there's been um, a lot of high-profile oustings in museums of directors and, and curators uh, for various kinds of infractions, the sorts that we uh, recognize these days um, that maybe have a, um, a cancel culture valence to them, someone saying the wrong thing or, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe being good at their job, maybe not, but um, clearly being a problem for people within the institution um, and being uh, asked to resign or fired. Uh, that kind of stuff's happening in museums. Uh, he, uh, the author references in this article that there's, um, there's all these museum directorships that are open. Um, they're finding it hard to fill these positions. Um, and then there's other crises that like we're all kind of aware of too. There's dirty money in museums. Um, you know, there's Sackler money and there's uh, oil money. Um, and uh, again, I, I totally recognize why people who work in the institutions and why the public uh, care about um, care about this. Um, and the other big one when it comes to the larger, um, more encyclopedic museums like the Met in New York or um, the British Museum, say, um, are that you know their their permanent collections um, in in very many cases are um, uh, you know the result of imperial conquest and plunder and they these museums have artifacts and artworks in their holdings that um, you know one could say don't belong to them and this is this is playing out in lots of different institutions the, the British Museum right now is um, you know, negotiations with Greece to potentially return the, um, the you know, formerly called Elgin marbles. We're not supposed to call them the Elgin marbles anymore because Elgin was the guy who stole them um, or took or rescued them, depending on how you feel about all of that. Um, so anyway, these are like, these are recent crises that are playing out in museums, and they're important for sure. Um, but uh, to suggest, as I think a lot of people in the arts do, I, I recently read, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, their review of the Philip Guston show that was now infamously delayed um, because Guston, even though he was like really quite an anti-racist in his life and in his work, uh, and saw himself that way. Um, uh, apparently museum audiences are too naive to figure that out for themselves. And so there was concern about his show that uh, it would upset people um, and it would seem to have the wrong politics. They delayed that show, but the show is now finally on and in reviewing it, the Times critic um, offhandedly made this point that museums um, are just stuck in the past. You know, and like museums haven't changed since the Victorian age is what he basically suggests. And the author of this nation piece does the same. And I just think that is such bullshit. I mean, you've just, you've got to be paying no attention. I, I honestly, I don't know if they're, 
to me, this is really representative of um, a lot of problems with the left these days. It's like, you take a person, if you could take a person from the year 1960 or 1980 or 2000 and show them a museum of today, a major museum of today, they'd be shocked. They would not recognize these institutions. They have changed so much um, since, you know, since the mid 20th century, they're changing all the time. But um, there are now these huge complexes. Um, they are um, kind of entertainment, uh, recreational complexes. You know, you go, and of course, I'm generalizing here. I'm, I'm talking more about larger museums and national museums. I'm not talking about smaller regional museums. Um, but yeah, you go to these big museums and, you know, you buy your branded tote bag from the gift shop, which for some reason also sells furniture. Um, and, you know, you hang out at the cafe or you have a, a posh lunch at the museum. Maybe you attend an artist's talk. You might go check out what the um, resident DJ is up to that day at the museum because they have these artists in residence now. Um, and uh, you check out the views because now architecturally it's very important that the museum, um, you know, gives you a, a view on the city. And um, in the evening, you know, you can take your whole family and they can, uh, the kids can uh, do some interactive activities. And, um, you know, museums have for a long time now not been primarily about the artworks in them, but about the visitor experience. Um, and there's various reasons for this that we could go into, but, um, you know, it's, uh, that you could say it's a neoliberal turn that museums have taken, um, that they have expanded beyond their scope. Again, it's similar to what's happened at universities. Um, I lived in Iowa City for a long time. The University of Iowa has a lazy river in its pool. It has a big swimming pool and it has another pool that has a lazy river. Like, why? Why is that? You know, because universities are not about what happens in the classroom anymore. They're about the visitor experience and museums are the same. Um, so anyway, that is the larger context um, in which all of this is happening. And so I would just say um, the idea that there's, you know, there's these, uh, there's these reckonings happening in museums and museums are having a kind of identity crisis is not untrue, um, but it's taking place within um, a much broader context of really dramatic institutional change um, that is now oriented around um, not the items within the museum, but about um, who the museum serves. Yeah, I mean, this, point you bring up about how museums like universities have become, you know, sort of like a resort, sort of like a mall, sort of, you know, combining all these different features of, of you know, 20th century or 21st century sort of commercial culture. I mean, that, you know, they, they're not, um, they're not primarily doing, uh, 
the thing of like presenting art or that, that that's, that's in a sense, uh, you know, it's only one of the attractions or it's, you know, perhaps in some cases more of a sideshow. Um, but then, you know, this also happens ideologically, right? And, and this is what, part of what you go into, which is that, you know, and, and this, um, you, know, you pointed me to this article about this, uh, this debate within the International Commission on Museums about what, you know, how, how the purpose or function of museums should be defined. And so sort of curators and, you know, people in the, in the industry from around the world have been debating this. And, you know, one definition is basically that they should, that they should understand their function is largely about, you know, bringing about political and social change, right? And, and that they should, um, you know, that their mission statements should, you know, fundamentally be about, um, you know, championing human justice, equality, and the well-being of the planet, so this, I mean, this reminds me of this kind of mission creep that you see in, you know, in, in sort of NGOs that are already sort of politically oriented on the left where they all have to be about everything. So if it's, you know, if it starts out as a sort of, I don't know, reproductive rights NGO, it ends up having to also be about climate change and everything, right? And so similarly, you know, you have this kind of way that just as museums, um, you know, try to become this kind of totalizing experience in terms of what they sort of market themselves to their visitors as. Sort of ideologically, they also have to be, um, you know, they, they, they downplay what we would take as their traditional purpose and instead have to understand themselves as, as fundamentally kind of agents of social justice and, you know, political action. Yes, yeah, there's NGO language all over. Um these uh these definitions yeah the icom i don't know if they say icom i didn't look it up I, that's what i say it's the international um council of museums um which is is itself a, an ngo based in paris i think uh it um it's affiliated with unesco i don't think it's under the un umbrella but um it's doing similar kind of work. Um, I think it came about, it was a post-war um, initiative, I think uh, grew out of an earlier um, uh, group that was um, part of the League of Nations. Um, so it's one of these post-war initiatives. Um, the International Council of Museums has 20,000 museums, um, that are its members um and you know i don't i don't as with all of these groups i don't know what they really do but uh it's probably good that they exist um you know i know um when it comes to individual institutions that rely on public funding um it's very important that they have these sorts of memberships and it's the language that they use to to define themselves is very important when they're seeking more support um, from their from their nation states. Um, so this this consortium had met in uh, 2019, and um, it had been operating. I don't know going back to when, but for a long time it had been operating with. Um, a working definition of the museum that had been agreed on by all of its members. 
Um, and I think this is, like I said, this is language that um, gets used in reports and things. Um, and um, what they had decided in, in 2019 was that it was time to revise this, this uh, definition, um, which is only natural. Um, and the, the groups kind of board, I think, had decided on a new definition and then was presenting it to um, the whole council. And it, there was a very dramatic um, kind of fallout about this. Um, it turned out that the, the new definition that had been signed off on by the board um, was full of language that has nothing to do with museums um, or what museums have historically been anyway. Um, apparently the French especially kicked up a huge fuss. I don't know who wrote this thing. I don't know. If, I don't think it was just like Americans though. Um, you know, the museum world, the international museum world um, is, uh, I don't know. I think everything we're saying about museums is, is probably playing out in some version in, uh, in most other countries too. But anyway, um, yeah, people were not happy with this new definition. And so they've been trying to hash it out since then. And they're now uh, coming up on the kind of final of 12 step of a 12 step process to um, come up with a new definition. And the new ones are not so extreme, but um, the, yeah, the origin, the original definition is really great. I'll just, um, if you don't mind, I'll just read a little bit from it. Cause I think it, um, it gets to, uh, the heart of what we're talking about. Um, uh, museums are democratizing inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue about the pasts and the futures. I'll just stop right there. Um, I love the pluralization of pasts and futures. Um, this uh, kind of language jumps out. Um, I also love that there's there's no way of knowing what is being described there. I mean, you could say the same about the beach you know, or a playground or something, that it's democratizing and inclusive and, and noisy. <laughs> um, um, next sentence, acknowledging, and this is this to me is like real NGO language, um, acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present. They, museums, hold artifacts and specimens in trust for society, safeguard diverse memories for future generations, and guarantee equal rights and equal access to heritage for all people. Acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present is, uh, is a real statement to say that that's what museums do. Um, you know, I don't know whether the Museum of the Pencil uh, which is a wonderful little museum up in the Lake District, uh, you know, back where um, some of the first pencils were made because they have, you know, carbon mines there. I don't know if that museum, um, I mean, it may or may not be a member of uh, this, count, this museum council, but how and in what ways that museum uh, acknowledges and addresses the conflicts and challenges of the present, I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, that's just one example, but um, yeah, this is there. I mean, talk about mission creep um, and that that would be a problem in itself. But it just seems to me there's 
a really bizarre hubris going on here. Um, the whole reason that we live in such a politically fractious time is because we can't agree on what the challenges of the present are. I mean, that's sort of the definition of, um, or that's, that's what's going on when people disagree on politics. You know, they have different people, different groups have different priorities. They, they uh, are not in agreement about what's, what are the challenges confronting us. And from those disagreements, they demonize one another. Um, but in the first place, it's, it's just a disagreement about what really matters um, and what are, what are the stakes. And so to say that museums, who in museums is gonna decide what the challenges for the present are? You know, we can't even, the people who are supposed to do that all day long, like can't get us to any kind of agreement on what the challenges of the present are. So um, I, find this, I find this very strange, but it, it certainly makes museums sound um, important. Um, I would just ask, you know, I would question whether um, museums were already important for other reasons and why are we, why are we inventing new reasons to, to value them? Um, so yeah, anyway, that's, um, that, that was the original language and people weren't happy about it. Oh, and then uh, the, the final sentence uh, also says that museums contribute to human dignity, social justice, global equality, global equality and planetary well-being. Again, planetary well-being, I don't know. I mean, does, is having like recycling bins in the museum like enough? to, you know, fit that um, definition. I don't know. Um, so yeah, they, that's not going to be the new definition. The, the final two proposals are, are a bit more watered down than that. But, um, you know, they say that museums foster diversity and sustainability and use this sort of language, which at this point doesn't really mean anything, um, it seems to me, but um, is, just, is just necessary messaging. Um, necessary messaging for who, I wonder. I don't know if it's the public demanding this or whether it's the, the NGOs from whom they get their money. Yeah, and I mean, I, it makes me sort of interested in, you know, I, <clears throat> I live and have, have mostly lived in, in New York uh, where obviously we have a number of these kind of mega museums, which, you know, ha I mean, on one level are, are the most likely to have this kind of, um, you know, totalizing type of mission that, that is both on the level of like this kind of curated experience that they're trying to draw people from all over the world to take in while at the same time, um, you know, and, and that they also have this kind of growth sensibility, right? I mean, this, the piece in the nation mentions the kind of repeated um, kind of megalomaniacal expansion projects of the MoMA, right, as one example. I mean, we could think of like the, the construction of the new Whitney um, in the meatpacking was another kind of, um, you know, which, and you know, you brought up the point about like how part of what they do is kind of offer views and, you know, kind of, um, 
you know, part of the experience is not just looking at what's in, but kind of looking out. And so the, the, the Whitney and the meatpacking is a good, good example of that, especially compared to the previous Whitney, right, which is this kind of um, almost, you know, I mean, there, there are almost no windows in it, right? And you're, uh -huh. you're, you're sort of entombed in this huge brutalist structure. So it oh, does you seem to look, represent you have to look at the art. Different. Right, you have to look at the art. I mean, interestingly, yeah. now the, the collection of the Frick is in that building, which is kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition. But um, the point I was going to make is that, you know, the other thing I, I'm sort of interested in, um, and, you know, Angela Nagel had a piece last year on her Substack. I'm not sure if you saw it about um, deaccessioning. So basically that, you know, a number of these museums are sort of, um, they, they have created a new mechanism by which permanent collection pieces can be sold off. Uh -huh. um, you know, despite the, I mean, basically they can kind of controvert the wishes of the, the donors who, who provided these pieces. And, you know, the way Angela reads it is kind of, you know, in relation to this older democratic mission of many museums. And I mean, what I think about with this is this older democratic mission is not, you know, necessarily the kind of big um, marquee museums in New York, but, you know, if you go to uh, various cities in the Midwest or, you know, what's called the Rust Belt, in the US, um, you know, basically the, the sort of industrial wealth that was produced 100 or 150 years ago, you know, led to the creation of, of really quite excellent museums, um, many of which are free, you know, and remain free to get into. Um, and, you know, part of my family is from Dayton, Ohio, um, where they had one such museum. And, you know, as a result, like my family who weren't particularly from there who, you know, didn't have particularly um, get far in education or have much, you know, additional exposure to kind of high culture, so to speak. Like they did have the Dayton Art Institute and they really actually experienced a lot of remarkable art through that, right? And yeah. so like my grandmother, despite like never having gone to college basically had this kind of sense of, you know, of, of European art um, and the sort of artistic tradition that you know what was essentially because these institutions have been created and have been created for the public, right? And um, and 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 again, most of them are are free or extremely affordable to get into. So the, so these kind of museums, you know, really, and you know, I I feel like I haven't been to many of them recently or seen kind of what how this kind of stuff is playing out there. But um, you know, they do reflect this kind of older mission that. You know, I don't know how specifically American it is versus what kind of versions of this you had in other countries, but, you know, that, that was kind of of a piece with like the Carnegie libraries and, you know, all of these kind of projects where, yes, you did have these like robber barons, but, and, then, okay. and they were, they were on one hand, you know, brutally, you know, uh, breaking up unions and things like that, but, um, you know, create, uh, establishing illegal monopolies and but at the same time, they were um, often uh, a huge amount of their wealth to creating these institutions, which, you know, the function of which was to essentially take these works and make them um, accessible to people who would otherwise have no, have no way of experiencing them. Um, so that's, you know, that's not necessarily, I mean, I, I guess there is a way in which I, I sort of idealize that just because it, 
you know, it, it had sort of an immediate impact on like my mother growing up and so on. But at the same time, you know, it, it certainly represents a kind of different um, sensibility of what it means, at least one different sensibility of what a museum can be and do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know the Dayton Museum. I, I'd like to go and see it. I, uh, when I lived in Iowa, I would frequently visit the Des Moines Art Center, which is a fantastic museum. And it's free, like you say. Their collection is just brilliant. You can, you can um, get a really thorough, not piecemeal, but a really thorough education in the, certainly in the, the history of 20th century art by spending time at the Des Moines Art Center. Um, it's also a, um, a great building. It's three different buildings, all architecturally of very different styles. Uh, there's, um, the, the oldest part is, um, I've forgotten his name, but the, uh, the Scandinavian architect and designer who did the arch in uh, St. Louis. Um, and then there's an IMP, like brutalist concrete uh, building. And then there's a, a, a much more modern uh, Richard Meyer um, wing as well. And they have a sculpture garden, um, just really fabulous collection um and you know it was never busy enough I felt uh and they do their little things here and there to try and encourage people to come I mean they have some um in their larger installation space they tend to have kind of more family friendly um and sometimes interactive installations which I understand you know they um, they want people to bring their kids, but uh, their, their permanent collection is so good. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point worth raising, um, not just that these, these types of institutions are very different. And I think, it, again, to, to compare the situation to higher education, I think, um, you know, in some ways, the, the things that we see in the news about what's happening in colleges and universities is, is, is more a phenomenon that's confined to the IVs and liberal arts colleges um, and larger state universities, but then smaller regional colleges and certainly community colleges have just, you know, are, are dealing with different sorts of issues. Um, so when we talk about all museums in the same way, or when we talk about all of higher education in the same way, we're, we're obscuring a lot. Um, uh, but one of, the, one of the things you make me think about is how um, another way in which uh, the museum experience has changed at the major uh, museums, major urban centers, um, is, is not just the user experience, but that they are less focused on the permanent collection than ever. Um, and this is a phenomenon that's been playing out for decades. Um, and it's why, you know, you're starting to see um, major museums uh, wanting to sell off uh, parts of their permanent collection um, because what they really um, 
One are these blockbuster shows that sell tickets, that draw in the tourists. Um, this is the, I haven't seen the numbers, but it, it, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that this is um, now their, um, how they make their money is by is these huge blockbuster shows. It didn't used to be that way at museums. Um, so yeah, if they have to sell off older works in order to kind of bolster their contemporary collection, but then also organize these huge shows, um, that's what's going to bring in the tourists. Um, and again, it's not something that has happened in the last 10 minutes. Um, really emblematic for me is that Guggen, infamous Guggenheim show from, I think it was 2000 or 99, the um, Art of the Motorcycle show was, uh, you know, really divided people at the time, but it was huge. It was a major success in terms of visitor numbers. Um, what, it's, what it signaled um, to, uh, to people is that, or it signaled a few different things, but to people who, you know, who are, for whatever reasons, highly skeptical of modern and contemporary art, um, who may tend to think that uh, the kind of art that gets made during their lifetime is, you know, made by charlatans, um, and it's all it's all just a game, and it's all for rich people, and it's all about being in the know and and being elitists. Um, the Guggenheim, and I don't want to say entirely inadvertently, I think they were playing off of those prejudices, kind of told audiences that they were right. Um, and, uh, you know, they brought in all these motorcycles and we could, uh, you didn't have to know a, a, a damn thing about art. You could just marvel at these um, cool looking machines. Um, and, you know, these sorts of shows aren't being put on all the time, but we, there are more and more, um, you know, exhibitions that are clearly for the kind of, inst you know, that are Instagrammable, um, for example. Um, I don't think the big shows are, um, they want as many people in the door as possible. You know, that is, that's, that's their mandate. Um, you're not going to get that with the smaller museums that are all about the permanent collection. You know, they're not, um, they don't change with the seasons. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to get on to your, um, your, you know, one of the main terms you use to define part of how this, uh, this current kind of sensibility behind, particularly the kind of class of people who manage and curate and sort of market museums and exhibits today um, is a utilitarian, right? That you kind of use this term of, um, utilitarianism to describe kind of the the sensibilities here um so i'm curious if you could kind of define the way you're using that and just um you know how 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 this describes uh what's what what's going on in these places it is a term that i've um elected on as a as a handy shorthand for everyone I, who I think is ruining everything in the arts, um, <laughs> not just in museums, but in the, you know, the literary arts too. Um, I 
in my essays that are on my Substack, um, I also write about the utilitarians who are now the ones uh, controlling everything and who uh, do not um, uh, think that art is valuable in itself, but is valuable on the basis of um, how it can change the world. Um, and this is um, not something that, you know, the, the, the utilitarians are not original thinkers. They're not the first <laughs> to ever approach the arts in this way. Um, for much of the history of art, um, it's been um, expected of artworks or they have been, artworks have been valued on the basis of their moral or religious or political utility. Um, you know, I don't think it makes sense to apply my expectations for an artwork to those that a person in the 15th century had or those that people in the classical world had. I think, um, you know, there's uh, society has changed so much over the course of human history and uh, consciousness has also changed and our spiritual lives have changed and our ways of understanding ourselves in the world we live in um, changes. Uh, evolves it's completely natural and so the place of art in in a society and in, and in an individual's life is going to change um, through the course of human history um, my problem with the utilitarians of today is that you know I think they're um, they are well, there's a few problems. I mean, I, I, I sort of don't care about why any individual does or does not value art. It's totally up to them. Um, but the, the kinds of people today who have power in institutions, power to um, choose what kind of art gets put on uh, display, who choose uh, what what kind of artworks, <clears throat> excuse me, get taught in the classroom, um, what kind of books get published and and reviewed and written up and therefore, um, you know, celebrated um, are, you know, utilitarians of a particular caste who I think are really, really narrowing um, the terms on which or by which um, art is valuable um, and it's you know it's why I started writing prose I haven't I haven't had the ambition to like be in this be in this space necessarily um, I have written poetry for a long time I moved to this country to get an MFA um, and just you know work on my poetry and obscurity um, didn't particularly care about whether I was read in my own time all that much. Um, you know, I, I believe in um, the kind of long view of the arts that it's really, it's not about the artist, it's about the work, it's about this, this genealogy um, of, of changing forms and changing expressions. And um, 
But the last couple of years, <laughs> I just found that um, the, the utilitarians have really, really kind of taken over. And I didn't, I wasn't finding other people writing about this or people who seem to be upset about it uh, or bothered by it. Um, and so, um, yeah, I started writing essays uh, very recently on this subject. Um, uh, pretty much because I just didn't see anyone else. I saw very few other people articulating what what uh, I recognized as problems. Um, and yeah, and, and so, you know, in, inherently I'm like, I probably sound like a bit of a reactionary because I'm, you know, I'm calling out the utilitarians. But I personally, I think that um, I write about this in one of my Substack essays on art for art's sake. Um, I think that the valuing art uh, for what it is, not for what it does for us, but for just what it is, is actually the original human impulse to, to make art and to um, encounter art. Um, so even if I seem like a reactionary, I actually think I came first, or my, my kind of thinking came first. Yeah, I mean, in one way we might say, you know, it, I, and I think you do touch on this, that, you know, that this kind of, um, you know, that these shifts in sensibilities sort of, you know, have occurred in various times and places, um, or, or these kind of conflicts between different sensibilities. I mean, in terms of, you know, I brought up the utilitarian term there, because I think it, I mean, it relates to, you know, why, the, the, you know, why we have the blockbuster show of motorcycles at the Guggenheim, because, I mean, one point you make about the sort of current mode of utilitarianism is it comes out of this kind of cultural studies framework that, um, you know, is sort of incubated in academia in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, you point out, um, quoting from you here, um, you know, uh, are just as billboards, contraceptive marketing and horticulture periodicals is considered a symptom or emissary of the society from which it emerged solely on the basis of what it demonstrates about its time and place as art and object of study. Um, and then, you know, in its predominant lower forms, you say cultural studies is a kind of supremely unrigorous social studies practiced by people who believe all art is propaganda. So, you know, this uh, is, you know, you argue sort of the the integral uh, work behind the way you know m museums are being curated, marketed, et cetera, today. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because on one hand, you have this kind of highly commercial project of you know basically just like bringing in as many bodies as possible, having these blockbuster shows and so on. And that's you know kind of on the commercial marketing side of museums where they're, you know, highly corporate and, you know, particularly the kind of bigger and more, you know, flagship they are, the more they, they have um, taken on those kind of impulses. But then, you know, in terms of the kind of managerial class that, that runs them on the level of like the content that's being purveyed to the visitor, they, you know, they're, they're informed, by, I mean, by this kind of pseudo radical mission you know, and tell me if you think I'm right about this, but, you know, art that is collected today 
and that is, um, you know, contemporary art basically has to be seen as instrumental in some kind of political project of the sort that we heard being um, invoked in those mission statement type, um, you know, documents, you know, it, ha it has to basically be instrumental in some kind of social justice struggle or towards planetary well-being or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you turn to the art of the past, you basically have to see it either as, you either have to expose it as a sort of reactionary expression of the ideology of the ruling class at the time that, yeah. that simply, you know, reifies and sort of instantiates that ideology, or, or you might read it as some kind of subversive um, project, you know, vis-a-vis -vis that sort of ruling class and its ideology. So, so those are, it seems like the only ways that you can actually look at and, and, you know, that, that the way these exhibits are framed, the way, um, you know, explanatory labels are, are, are used, you know, always kind of corresponds to this, uh, to this idea that really, you know, an artwork is, is political, is directly politically instrumental. It's, it's, it's indistinct from propaganda and it, it either supports or subverts, uh, you know, whatever the ruling ideology is at the time. If it's a contemporary work of art, you would only buy it if it subverts that supposedly, or if it is in some way a kind of, um, you know, part of one of these kind of social justice struggles. If it's an older work of art, you know, it's, it's got to, uh, you know, if, if you can, um, you know, if you can't make the case for it as somehow revolutionary, you have to basically expose it as a sinister manifestation of, of oppression. Yes, the older work um, in the the two museum shows that I write about in the essay. So there's the there was a major Hogarth um, exhibition at the Tate Britain um, that ran through last fall and winter and ended this spring um, at the Metropolitan um, in New York. There's a um, an exhibition that's been built around an item in the permanent collection that they're sort of reframing, um, which I think is uh, one example of um, a kind of project that they're undertaking to um, select individual works from the permanent collection and really focus on them um, uh, and, and uh, contextualize them in very specific ways um, and uh, in this in this one exhibition it is a sculpture um, by Carpo I can't remember Carpo's first name now French French sculptor from the um, from the 19th century um, of an enslaved uh, woman a uh, very famous iconic uh, uh, work of art um, so in these two shows, yeah, which I, are, are both recent and um, I think are like other exhibitions that are being that are being put on these days. As you say, when the work is older, um, the way it's being framed is either sort of problematic in itself um, or um, uh, representative or somehow demonstrative of a um, of something that was problematic about the past so it's not just that 
they are turning artworks into artifacts, which is to say historical or, or social phenomena merely, uh, not as works of art that engender an aesthetic you know, response um, or encounter for the viewer, um, but as just things from the past that tell us things about the past, about what was bad in the past, basically. I feel like it would be one thing if they were just giving us the history of these objects and telling and um, kind of explaining what these objects can teach us. Um, that's a that's a fine way of doing history. I do wonder, you know, again, mission creep, you know, I'm thinking of like New York Times is Haiti thing. It's like, okay, so the New York Times like does history now, I guess. That's like what journalism is now. It's like also a kind of history, but a very specific kind of history about what was really bad in the past. Um, and museums are doing the same, it seems. Um, and okay, you know, I, uh, people can disagree over whether this is quality uh, history or not. Um, I guess I would say it's one thing for, um, academics, either academics across the humanities, you know, whatever department they're in, to do this kind of analysis of, of artworks or other kinds of documents or artifacts from history. It's, it's one thing for them to do them in their departments, to write papers on them, to publish them in academic journals. Um, it's another thing when this is happening in museums that are for the public. Um, and yeah, we weren't we weren't consulted on it. Museums have decided that this is um, this is what they need to teach us now. Um, it's very hard, I think, to have gone to the Hogarth show and to leave it feeling good about any of the work, or especially good about oneself. Um, you know, if you if you look at some of these objects and and you enjoy them or take pleasure in them um, or, you know, feel part of the whole range of possible things that one can feel uh, when looking at art. And then you read the label, um, you know, it, it can feel like being scolded. And it's strange to me that um, the, the curators at these shows are so sort of defensive about their own uh, collections. They're almost apologetic about them. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I felt it was important to, to, to say in the, um, in the tablet essay at the end that like, Tate Britain put on a big Hogarth show. That in itself is great. You know, I'm, they could just hide these paintings away and refuse to ever show them. And um, even if I disagree with the framing, um, you know, at least the work is on show. Um, so I, you know, I think this deaccessioning is, is a problem for sure. Um, but I would just, you know, I would encourage people to not be too catastrophist about it. I mean, I don't think they're going to start selling off um, all the masterpieces because they were made by, you know, white men. Um, we're not, we're not there. And this, I mean, it makes me wonder if there's sort of a, you know, 
if there is or will increasingly be a tension between this kind of, I mean, on one hand, the, the increasing commercialization of museums and, you know, the fact that this goes along with the, you know, essentially a kind of customer oriented um, approach, right? Where again, the, the main purpose is to kind of curate these, ex these unique experiences that can be consumed, you know, particularly by tourists. But then on the other hand that, um, you know, there is this kind of, um, you know, didactic and kind of moralizing quality to a lot of how this is framed, which as you said, you know, doesn't make you feel, you know, it actually seems directly uh, intended to instill a kind of guilt in any enjoyment, which again, I think relates to this, this kind of fear of, of aesthetic and moral contagion, which, you know, I suppose we could trace back to like Plato's critique of art and, you know, initial <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, anxiety about the art um, and sort of desire to regulate representation but you know so this is a it's an old impulse but you know the the way that that again this kind of moralizing didacticism and that that tends to you know be a kind of you know anti you know it it, it seems to militate against a kind of hedonistic um or I mean, maybe not. I mean, I, I think, you know, in a sense, I'm saying hedonistic in terms of like, on one hand, the museum is supposed to be a kind of fun house where, you know, kids can have a good time and, and uh, you know, the whole family can, you know, again, have this kind of packaged experience that is, is part of the kind of tourist circuit. But on the other hand, there, you know, there is this kind of, um, yeah, just extremely um, scolding kind of quality of a lot of how these uh, materials are framed. So... I don't know. I mean, is there a, is there a tension between these two things? Um, will these somehow, I mean, I think there is a tension just on the surface, but you know, it, it, um, does that, does that end up, I don't know, creating problems for this project in the long run? Um, you know, th again, th th this kind of moral didactic project that this whole kind of class of curators is, as that ICOM example reveals seems to, seems to be devoted to. Um, or I don't know, is there some way that they're ultimately part of the same complex? It's a good question whether whether this is um, whether this is going to last or whether it's even good strategy if if what they ultimately care about is um, getting people in the door. Um, I I agree that that you know this is a the the museums are customer oriented in a few different ways, but when it comes to these newer exhibitions and the way that the works are being framed, I don't know, I couldn't guess like what proportion of, um, of visitors are, are down with this stuff. Um, I think the, I think on a, um, on a, on a day-to-day -day level, the people running these institutions are just terrified of bad PR. I mean, I think that has a, that explains a lot. It's a, it's kind of a boring answer, but um, they are trying to ward off the kinds of um, criticisms that, that uh, all institutions face these days with, with social media. So um, I think that gets to the, what feels like a defensiveness on their part. Um, but I, um, 
you're making me think of uh, this one. I saw someone um, tweet about my, wrote this tweet about my essay that I just adored. I find found it like super vindicating. He liked, he didn't enjoy the essay or he, he didn't, he didn't agree with the essay. Well, he, I think he was like an historian or something. This person said um, that he kept coming close to agreeing with the points I was making, but the closer he got, the more he felt like he was um, moving to a side of the culture war that he tries to avoid. And I just found this so wonderful and telling. I mean, it's really what I'm trying to, not in this essay, but I think maybe I'll write about this at some point. The, the, the state we're in where um, there is a level of self-surveillance going on um, among everybody. I don't think it's just the art going uh, public um, of a certain class. I think everyone is um, surveilling themselves constantly and uh, always aware of what their opinions and actions and expressions say about who they are and say about what side of the culture war they're on or what kind of person they are, that you know, anything you do um, somehow um, affiliates you with others who are either good or bad. Um, and so certain thoughts are unthinkable because it would put you on the wrong side. Um, and certain, uh, I don't know, feelings should also be denied. Um, uh, I admit it reminds me of um, Dave Hickey's uh, essay, Enter the Dragon, is, um, I've really mixed feelings about that essay. It's, it's fantastic, it's really important, but uh, he makes, he uses, uh, Foucault's example of uh, the of Bentham's Panopticon and how you know being uh, or his point is that the and he he wrote this essay back in the, the early nineties I think it was like ninety one or something um, about how uh, this is just in the beginning of the essay he he lays out his uh, frustrations with the art world institutions. Um, and uh, in, an, in another version of my essay, actually, that was longer, I do credit Hickey um, a little bit for, you know, really separating the art market from all these other institutions, which are the ones that you and I are talking about now, that are not just museums, but higher education, the NGOs, um, and the, the for-profit, um, uh, and also state-run agencies that fund the arts um, and the art media too, um, that, you know, the market uh, doesn't, doesn't care about the artworks, meaning they just want it to be beautiful. I think that's changing. He was, he was writing in a very different time. Um, uh, but that you can, you can say that about the market. And then on the other hand, all these are the non-market institutions really care about what the art means and they care about your soul and they care about whether the art is good for you. Um, and this 
this relationship between you know the people presenting the art and the the art receiving public um, is one in which you know you are being surveilled um, and you are being asked to be a good person and to think about whether you're a good person um, and to expect that from from the work. Um, I think it's uh, so much worse now when Hickey than when Hickey was writing in the early 90s. I mean, of course, we're um, we're the most surveilled and self-surveilling people of, of all time, probably. It certainly feels like it. Yeah, sidebar, I did an episode with um, Daniel Oppenheimer on, um, on Hickey, about his book on Hickey. So um, listeners might who are interested in this discussion might also go back to that one, um, since we touch on some related stuff. And yeah, Hickey is interesting in his kind of, um, you know, very contrarian uh, take that, you know, in a sense, the market, you know, the, the real dangerous art can't come from art institutions uh, far more than the market, right? Which is is the more, I, I suppose, the more acceptable take about how art is being corrupted is that it's it's being corrupted by the market. Um, so, you know, and, and then as now, um, you know, you can sort of get away with saying that more, but, so uh, two other things that, you know, go into your analysis that I wanted to touch on, you know, that I think, you know, that, I, that both relate to this um, and particularly relate to how the kind of, you know, again, I'm thinking of a, you know, a kind of aesthetic, you know, a sort of aesthetic managerial class or something like this, wow. this class, this intermediary class that positions itself between us and these works. And I mean, it is striking, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned going to the Frick, the, the Frick collection, which is currently in the former um, Whitney Museum um, on Madison Avenue. And I mean, one interesting, one striking thing about going there right now, although, I mean, although there are a couple of, of small um, displays that sort of reflect some of the tendencies we're discussing, for the most part, the, um, the works are all unlabeled. I mean, they're just, they're mm -hmm. just there. Um, you can like look up, you know, they have numbers next to them so you can look up what they are and so on, but there's almost no text attached to them, right? So, you know, that's the kind of, you know, relatively unmediated experience that is that is quite rare today, um, yeah. right? Normally you have this huge apparatus um, built up around it. And I mean, one point that you make is that, you know, the, the way that this tends to go is it, it, it essentially conceives of each work as containing, I mean, and this relates to the kind of ideologue, you know, the, the notion of art as, as propaganda in a sense that it, it has a, each work of art has a message, right? That can be named and encapsulated like in a small explanatory text. And so what you're supposed to take away from it is, is fundamentally that, right? Which is, which is sort of supplied to us by the, the curator or these little, um, you know, About experts kind of weigh in or sometimes in one example you mentioned like ventriloquize this uh, figure in one of one of the works by Hogarth I think um, oh, yeah. and so yeah so there there's kind of this um this you know this message that has to be extracted right and that's what that that's that's ultimately what the art is so it's almost like it has a kind of piece of metadata that you know is fundamental it's is its fundamental kind of point and, and, you know, telos in a way. And then the other point that you discuss in a different essay is 
the role of empathy and this kind of, um, this idea that, you know, again, the moral purpose of art, you know, the moral and kind of social purpose of art is, is often connected to this idea that it can create empathy. So it, you know, it seems like these are potentially related, but maybe also slightly different ways of approaching the, the issue because the, the information, you know, the, the idea that it has a message attached to it seems to almost bypass, um, you know, bypass any kind of strong emotional effect and instead just focus on some kind of ideological, um, you know, kind of, you know, basic unit of like a, 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 a sort of simple ideological message that can be extracted. Um, whereas, you know, then on the other hand, there is this kind of emo- this level of emotional engagement that's permitted or that's um, encouraged by a lot of these types of um, by a lot of these these types of exhibits is on the level of empathy. Yeah, what you're listening to um, bring those bring those two issues together. Um, I think maybe another way of um, thinking of them uh, is that um, in, in really simplified terms, and I'd, the, the Great Debasement is, touches on this, um, I think it, is, it can be fruitful to think about um, experiences of art in terms of their public and private dimensions. And we might be able to say that what the institutions are doing now is not only focusing really on the public dimensions of, of art, um, but also trying to kind of manage um, what those uh, public uh, responses uh, will entail. Um, so, you know, for the when I write about empathy and this uh, new, I don't know if it's new, but I think it's there's there's uh, there's a real focus these days. It's a really smart thing to do if you're a young artist who wants to be who wants to get money <laughs> to support you in doing your work. Or if you want people who haven't really thought deeply about why art is meaningful to them to take you seriously. Or if you are a, a young artist who doesn't have much confidence and you want wants your parents to support you um, in what you do or in what you're choosing to do with your life, you should say your work is about empathy because that makes it sound like you're doing a kind of humanitarian work. Um, And who could say the word, you know, Jill Biden talked about empathy all the fucking time in the run up to 2020. She said that this was the empathy election. Um, You know, this is what the world is missing. This is what the world is lacking. There is a dearth of empathy. Um, and all our problems, you don't have to be specific. I mean, if, if anything, this is like the most non-specific term. Uh, one of the more non-specific terms that the utilitarians use is empathy. We all need more of it. The world would be a better place uh, if we had more of it. And look, there, I would not for a moment deny that artworks 
can be sometimes decent, sometimes very good vehicles for engendering empathy between individuals. I would say that other things do that too very well. You know, I think going to, you know, if you are, you know, living in the United States and you've not traveled outside the United States and you go eat at a Vietnamese restaurant, a little hole in the wall run by a Vietnamese family, you know, you, you are, you're going to eat really good food and it might, you know, make you feel uh, more interested in Vietnam and the Vietnamese, Vietnamese people um, and, you know, engender a kind of empathy in you that you don't have otherwise. It's why people loved Anthony Bourdain. He was like this super empathetic guy who like traveled around and, you know, had these ordinary encounters that were like all about our common humanity. It's great. My point being like, yeah, the arts can do that, but to say that this is the most important thing about art or that um, we should be encouraging young people to really focus on empathy as what's valuable about art, I think just ends up like fucking people up, honestly, young people. I think, again, it gets to this self-surveillance thing. It's like, don't just have the experience, which might be messy and confusing and might make you like, you know, angry and freaked out or confounded. Like those experiences are actually really powerful and can be the basis for, you know, uh, um, and an aesthetic experience that makes you want to learn more about art and care about art. Um, foregrounding empathy is like all about being a better person to others. So it's about the, the kind of public, more public aspect rather than the private um, encounter. And I think the, the, the messages in the same way um, that, that are being delivered um, by the curatorial teams in museums now um, regarding individual artworks are all about how these works should be understood in their, you know, original historical public context, but then also to inform uh, us today as citizens. Um, you see this, uh, to, to go back to something we were talking about before, um, some of the bigger museums, it's really telling if you go look at their, like, mission statements, um, which... You know, maybe they're rewriting them all the time. I don't know. But um, some of them really stand out. Um, and, you know, the, the Brooklyn Museum uh, says that it's a place where great art and courageous conversations are catalysts to a more connected, civic and empathetic world. Um, great art and courageous conversations. So, you know, they want... They want the art to be understood, um, again, publicly, um, something that will make us go out into the world um, as catalysts, they use that word, um, to make the world more connected. Um, yeah, art can do that. I'm not going to say art can't do that. Um, but uh, I don't know. Indivi you'd have to make the case for individual works, it seems to me. I mean, to say that that's what we're expecting of art just means that um, we, uh, we can't find anything to value about most of um, what has been made. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that gets us back to this, you know, larger issue of, you know, what the nature of this crisis is that all of these things manifest. And I mean, one, you know, one point would just be what, you know, what sort of value does art and particularly the experience of seeing works of art, you know, in a museum, um, sort of seeing originals basically possess, um, what's the nature of that? What's, you know, what is distinct about that experience? Um, and what, what is the, what, what, how do we define, how can we define the value of it? Um, and then second of all, you know, what, what value do these institutions provide to civilization, right? So, you know, I think part of what all of this has to do with is that, you know, that there's, the, the older answers have become sort of discredited and problematic. And so these have sort of, um, have come in to, uh, to kind of um, fill in the gap of, you know, of, of how we answer these questions. And I mean, you know, I think that similar stuff goes on and I mean, has happened in academia, right? Um, that, you know, if, if you think about the shifting like mission statements, academic institutions, you can see a kind of similar um, gradual distancing from older, an older paradigm and movement towards I mean, I'd say recently in particular towards these, a similar kind of language um, okay. where, you know, but, but so, you know, these are institutions that are tied to a particular kind of civilizational history, right? And, you know, they, they seem to be largely uncomfortable. The people who run them seem to be, and, that, you know, this relates to something else I've written about in the context of academia, which is that, you know, basically if, if you want to make it in, in a lot of academic fields, the best way to do that is to kind of attack the field in which you're operating, right? The, oh yeah, field, that, chron that chronicle piece of yours. Yeah, yeah it's very good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the field in which you're operating, I mean, to succeed in that field, you're, you're, you're best, of, or not necessarily your best approach, but one seemingly successful approach recently has been to say that it's irrecuperably, um, you know, white supremacist, et cetera, and therefore needs to be dismantled. And it seems like something similar is, is going on with these museums and, you know, also in a context where, as we've been discussing, there's, you know, this, <clears throat> this kind of commercial and corporate agenda on one hand, and then, you know, just as there is in universities, and then there's the kind of agenda of this you know, this vast middle management apparatus. Um, and so, you know, in, in effect, um, these, uh, I mean, th these kinds of ways of conceiving the museum and the artwork, um, you know, on one hand are, you know, are explicitly um, trying to demote or, or completely erase the, the kind of older understanding of what these institutions were for and what, you know, what the purpose of viewing art was. Um, and and, and that, that means that they're often framed in this kind of antagonistic and kind of revolutionary way, right? Mm -hmm. 
where you know the, the the museum itself becomes the sort of antagonist of the people. I mean, the museum in its older sense, right, becomes the antagonist of the people who are now running the museum, right? And I mean, I think this relates back to this whole question of attention because you have a, of a sort of internal tension because on one hand you have this kind of corporate drive towards growth and expansion, but then on the other hand, you have this kind of crisis of legitimacy, which takes the form of, you know, the people running the institution seeming to, at least in their, many of their public statements kind of disagree with its very existence on some level. <laughs> so. mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to say just quickly, because um, you earlier used the word original, so you've referred to the the original works of art and it's uh, this, my tablet essay was, a, uh, was in the beginning I was working on something that was like twice as long um, and I've ended up portioning off um, a, a related uh, piece that I'm trying to finish now. Um, but uh, I think I, I said at one point, you know, it'd be, it'd be one thing if these cultural studies analyses of, of artworks were just being confined to you know academic journals but the problem is that they're they're being brought into museums and they're doing this moralizing thing um, I think ultimately it's like a really fatal it's really fatal for the museums to do this because they have the original artworks you know you can do this kind of analysis of a, uh, looking at a reproduction of an image um, if you have a picture in a book, you can you can say these things about it. The museums have the originals. They, you know, there's value in an original work of art. It's a very different thing to stand in front of than to um, you know look at a picture of or have a postcard of or something. Um, and I'd feel like the museums, I guess, inadvertently are sort of telegraphing to us that. There's nothing special about the original that, you know, looking at this thing that's actually a made object that is, has material qualities um, that um, are the means by which we, you know, respond to them in, in all kinds of ways. Um, that actually that materiality is like kind of irrelevant. Um, that, you know, uh, the fact that paintings are, um, uh, made up of paint on canvas is like kind of irrelevant. You know, it's just um, the, the thing as an image um, rather than the thing as a painting, um, I think is what they're sort of telling us, which I think is really, it's really bad because what they're sort of doing is suggesting that. And, and I think they, they really messed up during COVID by making out like, going to a digital exhibition on your phone or iPad where you can like continue to see the works was like really stupid um, because that's not what encountering the art actually, uh, I mean, th those are always gonna be very, very different experiences and, and much lesser ones, honestly. Um, so for them to make out like digital reproductions are um, like as great as original paintings is like, it's totally bizarre. Um, but anyway, to the, the, the bigger point that you're making, um, I, yeah, you, you, um, 
you try and imagine what those what those job talks are like where people come into departments and they say this whole department this whole discipline is uh you know is white supremacist <laughs> you know and the uh and uh, apparently that works apparently that's like a way you can get a job now is uh going in and like calling everyone out um uh it's a it's a curious thing um and yeah this this uh reassessment of um what have been the long-standing values of of a discipline um i think it, i think the stakes are to me the stakes seem much higher than like people within these departments realize um I don't think there's a grand conspiracy going on necessarily. I think people are making things up as they go along. Um, but as as you point out, if I'm remembering in that um, Chronicle article you wrote, there's there's this bizarre contradiction where you have you know the same people who are saying that their their entire discipline uh, needs to be gutted and you know remade um, in you know kind of six months later we'll be saying that uh you know their discipline is the kind of bedrock of 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 a democratic society and is really really important um so i think that there's there's like a real hollowness um at the heart of uh of these endeavors right now i think people don't know what their values are i'm also reminded um a little bit this might be tangential but something else that really stood out to me in the nation um article that we've discussed a little bit is um right at the end the author um uh kind of shifts to and this is the part of the the article that's good where you have this um you know you have this lefty guy um uh recognizing publicly recognizing that um you know it it's uh it might be a problem or for him it's like a little bit of a problem that young people like you know have these new demands for art and that their values are so at odds with with his generation and with what these institutions have stood for and it's creating a challenge for the museums um i mean i have to also say since when did museums like need to rewrite themselves to make young people ignorant young people happy i mean that there's like a weird unexplored presumption there um but he also says that uh he keeps hearing from his friends who teach in art schools that um fewer and fewer of their students are prepared to approach art as a matter of form um and he hears the same thing from art historians about the students they teach. I don't know about you, but whether students are prepared to approach art as a matter of form in the classroom, it shouldn't matter. Whether or not they're prepared to, um, who's the teacher here? Who's the one providing an education? Like, you don't go to college to like learn the things you want to learn them the way you want to learn them you go to have people who know what the fuck they're talking about 
and who have already like internalized uh, this information, this knowledge, uh, impart it to you and challenge you. It's so weird to me that, um, oh, well, you know, if young people's values are just like, we got to defer to them if that's what they want. It's like, well, maybe they haven't been educated. Uh, maybe the case hasn't been made to them for the old values. And they're probably pretty ignorant about what those, those values were um, because they've received really crap education um, in art. Um, but there's this weird thing on the left where it's just like, well, we shouldn't even expect them to learn about this stuff because they're not interested in it. Um, I, I just don't recognize that as education at all, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. And I mean, it's also, it, it's interesting as well that, you know, there's kind of a pipeline issue here where, um, you know, you convincingly suggest that, uh, I mean, and you mentioned this before, as far as like who gets hired to work in museums today, but, you know, there is this kind of uh, dearth, you know, this dearth of, of positions, you know, traditional positions in in academia, and so people with PhDs kind of disseminate out into other fields. Now, that's how you have this kind of lab leak situation whereby these kind of um, <laughs> academic <laughs> principles and ideas kind of end up appearing on museum labels um, and, and kind of shaping the, the presentation of exhibits. You know, and, and I think there is a kind of sociological phenomenon here that, you know, would partly I mean, you know, you have a whole sort of complex of, of education and training and formation that's kind of producing the people with these sensibilities. They're, they're acquiring these sensibilities because that's what's kind of presented to them as, as de rigueur by the institutions they're coming up in. And then, you know, it essentially kind of reproduces itself because they, um, because then they, you know, are able to kind of frame education and experiences in those same terms. But, you know, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, it does seem to me that in a lot of these instances, I mean, we've seen this, I, I think I've seen examples of this in, in, um, in art, art museum contexts, but I, I can't think of a good, good one off the top of my head, but, you know, in newsrooms where you have kind of, you know, a lot of internal kind of um, management issues, right, that, that these, these sort of ideological struggles also manifest in terms of, you know, um, I mean, older guard versus newer guard um, kind of facing off against each other. And basically um, in a lot of cases, I mean, and this kind of goes back to my, you know, my, my issue about the tension, because I think, you know, I had, I had somebody to talk about, uh, who's written a book about the history of the New York times on, and he kind of argued that he didn't, he didn't really buy the idea that, you know, that what's been going on at the Times is just a product of this kind of woke staffers, huh. you know, on the, on the younger side kind of, um, you know, um, pressure, you know, successfully pressuring higher ups to go in their direction because he thinks that it is also part of a kind of larger marketing scheme by which the Times, you know, sees its future in this kind of, um, you know, I, I mean, as you pointed out, it's also now doing history, but, you know, as this kind of total ideological product, right, that will, um, that will essentially, you know, reflect 
these nascent sensibilities um, back to people of the class who, you know, by and large read the Times, and that you know that that the acceptance of a lot of the stuff is is kind of of a piece with the way it chose to market itself, particularly in the Trump era, right? As uh-huh. as, a, as a fundamentally ideological project. Now, I mean, I tend to think museums seem a bit different in terms of who and what they're trying to appeal to. So, you know, I, I tend to imagine a lot of the, um, I, you know, I, I suppose my slightly hopeful take, you know, you, you sort of, um, was the end of the great debasement, you know, essentially, you know, you say categorically ignoring any but the most basic museum labels is the first thing an art lover could do. Um, I may be slightly hopeful that, you know, that that is and will be the case for, I don't know, maybe half or even more of the people who go to these museums, you know, for one reason or another. Um, And so, you know, what that sort of means is that, you know, a lot of the stuff may actually bypass, you know, much of the public. And so what it will instead do is, is basically cultivate, which, which is not good, right, is, is again, kind of perpetuate this, um, this kind of system whereby these ideas are reinforced on the next generation and thus kind of continue to be the dominant um, and, and increasingly become a sort of complete monoculture because, um, you know, once the people who are currently in the junior level positions move up, they've sort of successfully produced this this uh, total sort of ideological orthodoxy. So, I mean, on one hand, there's that. On the other hand, I think there is a kind of, um, there is a way that people consuming or, you know, people going to museums for one reason or another may simply end up doing what you recommend and ignoring a lot of the stuff. And so, you know, I I guess I, I wonder in that sense, I mean, I think on one level, another negative effect of it may be that it will simply make people um, make people dislike the material and dislike the experience. Um, and so it will mean that, I don't know, museums are more likely to do more motorcycle exhibits. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to try, for me to try to figure out, uh, you know, what the... I mean, what, I'm curious, like, what percentage of the people who go to these exhibits, like, actually read the labels, I'm guessing, and, and sort of uh, take them seriously. I'm guessing a lot of the people I know do. <laughs> and, uh-huh. so, but, um, and so that means that people who are kind of in education and in the culture industry and so on are themselves having their kind of, you know, perhaps incipient beliefs about this kind of reinforced. Um, they're, they're being given these kind of neat little ideological messages that they can then reproduce to other people in conversation. Um, but then, you know, it seems like because museums are also kind of trying to bring in these huge crowds, there are probably a lot of other people who may just bypass that in one way or another. I don't know how, how big a problem this is. Um, I. I don't, I wouldn't want to say what percentage of people I think ignore the labels or scoff at them or um, conversely, you know, 
take them as take them as gospel and um, look at the artwork, feel certain things about it um, that might be positive, um, and then and then read the label and um, correct themselves. Um, I think what the um, what the experts within the institutions know is that there is a, a crisis of confidence um, on the part of the individual. Um, people don't trust their aesthetic experiences. They don't trust themselves to be responding to the art in the right way. They think they, they can get things right and wrong when it comes to art. Um, uh, which is which is weird because there was actually you know the opposite was a was a major phenomenon of the of the late twentieth century that art is whatever whatever you think it is and it's totally subjective and you don't need to know a damn thing you know about the history of art or the materiality of art um, you know if if you think Cy Twomley is like a Twomley is something that a child could have made, then like that's totally valid. Um, so there, um, I know there are people who still think that way. So there's, you know, there's a lot of contradictions um, at play here, but I think the kind of people who go to the Met, there are a lot of them who want to be told what to think because they're not confident um, in their own impressions. And I think yeah. I think New York Times readers are the same people who <laughs> want to be told by Times yeah. uh, op-ed writers what to think. Um, and yeah, yeah. And, it, and I mean, in a sense, you know, it's a slight tangent, but I've been reading um, Norman Podoritz's uh, "Making It." you know, which is this kind of memoir of coming up among the sort of New York intellectuals of the 50s, 60s. And, um, you know, I mean, one, one interesting thing that connects to this is that, you know, that whole milieu of New York intellectuals kind of came about because there were these, these young, um, you know, basically almost all like Jewish communists sort of, you know, very brilliant young students um, at City College who rejected the sort of Stalinist view, you know, which, which was essentially a kind of utilitarian view of art as, as always necessarily propagandistic, right? And that, you know, basically the, the sort of orthodox view among leftists and communists in this sort of 1930s popular front period was, was something like this, right? That, that art should be didactic, that it, it, it always necessarily is propaganda either on behalf of the bourgeoisie or the proletariat um, and so on, right? And so these, you know, the founding sort of generation of the New York intellectuals who founded the Partisan Review um, were, you know, their entire kind of brief against that kind of dominant Stalinist kind of social realist worldview was an argument for the, the sort of relative autonomy of aesthetic experience and, you know, specifically for the value of, of modernism and sort of modernist experimentation over and against this kind of more representational mode of art at the time. So that's, that's kind of one point that I think is interesting that, you know, that we're, you know, this, this whole discussion we're having kind of, you know, it does replay um, things that were debated at earlier 
really pivotal moments. The second thing sort of has to do with middle, this, the other thing that kind of comes out of that period is this notion of middle brow, right? That, you know, the sort of emergence of high brow, low brow, and then, or that, you know, essentially it's sort of that with the, with the growth of, of sort of consumer culture, right? You have the emergence of this new sphere of culture, which is called middle brow, right? And so I suppose if we wanted to be specific about the domain of this, this whole phenomenon that we're discussing more broadly, it kind of has to do with this realm of the middle brow, right? I mean, essentially of how the, <clears throat> you know, traditionally high art and the institutions that have housed it and, and presented it you know, are, are sort of marketed to this, you know, again, sort of New York Times reading public, which is less likely to, um, you know, f- consist of people who feel confident in kind of developing their own views. And so they're looking for a certain amount of guidance, right, from these sort of mediating institutions and the kind of paratextual materials that they provide. And so, you know, part of what we're seeing, I think, is a, is a shift in the, the way that, you know, the, the particular content of that whole sort of apparatus, right, that, that essentially guides and sort of shapes the, the middle brow experience of art, let's say. And I mean, I'm not using middle brow in a sort of derogatory way. I'm sort of a, you know, pretty much a cheerful consumer of a great deal of many, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> sort of self-identify as middle brow, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, but I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Um, but it, it might be one way of kind of defining this. And then, you know, again, if this comes out, you know, one form that sort of middle brow culture took was this kind of popularized appreciation of modernism, right. In the mid century moment. Uh, um, you know, if you, I don't know if you just think of like, business off like you know corporate offices with you know Herman Miller chairs and like uh abstract expressionist prints on the walls and things like that you know Mm -hmm. you might imagine some some uh um you know cool jazz playing in the background or whatever right so that that kind of you know that kind of aesthetic right but um you know what we're seeing now is a, a very different uh you know, in other words, the way that that the the arts are sort of packaged and, and marketed and presented, and, and also the way our experience of them is guided, has taken on this this distinct form that you know I can say I I don't think existed to the same extent at all like twenty years ago or so when I was a sort of young person going to these kinds of places. It's not to say that it didn't exist at all, but it it definitely was not pervasive in the way you describe. Do you mean that there was more highbrow culture there then? Yeah, I mean, maybe I've muddled things with the highbrow, middlebrow stuff. I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm, I don't think that the way these materials were framed to people have had quite the same didactic and moralistic form. No, um, I don't know. I, I think yeah. this is, I think this is pretty new. And, um, it's well it is I want to be fair I mean it is and it isn't like I said like Hickey was writing about the therapeutic these institutions as therapeutic as um you know wanting to um tend to your soul and um 
you know, support and present art that was good for you um, back in the early 90s. Um, but the but that's not the same as as really didactic or highly politicized um, art, which, um, you know, I think there's I think the uh, the um, increasing exposure and um, and and celebration of that work um, correlates with other kinds of trends that we've seen really take off since 2013, 2014, and then after 2020, you know, there's clearly the kinds of shows that are being put on now in museums were clearly kind of uh, workshopped uh, in 2020 um, with, uh, you know, the urgency that people were feeling then because of the political climate and and then the, the larger cultural phenomenon of Trump just totally scrambling people's brains and, uh, you know, uh, this this feeling that um, the stakes are always incredibly high. Everything is political, and um, if we're not if we're not fighting the forces of fascism um, in every domain of our lives, then we are acquiescing to them. Um, so yeah, there's definitely you know there's a new fervor to all of this, um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to really quickly um, dunk again on the Nation article because he brought up uh, Soviet museums and he makes this like totally bizarre point and doesn't substantiate it whatsoever that all of there's all these problems in museums and um, uh, one way to solve them would be socialism. Um, and never explains like what in the hell difference that would make if uh, you know all of the museums were um, nationalized. Um, there were museums in the Soviet Republic, you know, and uh, you know I never visited any of them, but I have a feeling like they weren't the best museums ever. They probably had some really great art in them, but um, this idea that like our problems would go away if we just like had we just had socialists running everything or had nationalized everything is like so naive and bizarre it's like such a such a thoughtless thing to say it seems to me like there's uh you know in my opinion you know, there should be public money in the arts there should be private money in the arts too um i i don't think it's ever going to be possible or even desirable to have a society in which everyone cares equally about art. There's always going to be some people who care more than others and who want to spend more time and spend their money um, investing in the arts just, you know, because of human variation. I don't think there's there could ever be a human society where we all love sport equally or anything else. Um, so that's not to say I don't think there should be really robust uh, you know, programs and, uh, you know, a lot of funding, public funding for the arts. But um, this idea that socialism is the answer to museums' problems is, like, so, so weird. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I have a thought, and perhaps we should wrap up, um, but it, um, I, I have a, a, a sort of thought and perhaps final question that, that, I, that does tie into that. Berger's ways of seeing, 
you know, which is itself a kind of interesting document of, I mean, you know, you're, you're from the UK, so I don't, I, I'm not necessarily that knowledgeable about it, but, you know, the, the BBC productions of, of a certain period, um, you know, particularly these kind of documentaries were, and I mean, some of them are still are, but, you know, were quite remarkable, um, both as, you know, just as, as sort of public, um, you know, accessible public um, expositions and, you know, kind of um, uh, engagements with the public on, you know, these sorts of issues and, and materials. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and, and quite remarkable uh, series. Um, you know, Berger himself being a, a socialist or communist, you know, very radical, um, <clears throat> but, but sort of part of this public, you know, arts apparatus such as it existed in, in the more socialistic era of, of you know, pre-Thatcher era, I guess. But, um, you know, and Mark Fisher talks about this, of course, in, in some of his writing about, you know, when he, when he was growing up, the kind of accessibility of culture um, through these, these kinds of programs, right? And then the way that that's sort of taken away in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, so Berger is an interesting character in relation to all these issues, because on one hand, you know, there's a great deal of what he argues there that we could imagine being, I mean, and I imagine many of these people who, you know, become curators and do these types of highly kind of moralizing, didactic kind of politicized exhibits might have like seen and been influenced by ways of seeing, because it's kind of a standard thing to, to um, assign in, in, in art history type classes. Um, but, you know, he's interesting because he does clearly have a sense of uh, a sort of, I mean, wanting to preserve the sort of autonomy of aesthetic experience on some level, although it's, it's sometimes in that series a little bit tricky to get at because on one hand he is a lot of the time, I mean, two parts of the argument, right? He's, he is going back to the period and tying the, the creation of these paintings to, you know, the, the sort of patronage system and their, their function as a kind of ideological cover in a sense for the, the ruling class of the time, right? And then at the same time, he has this argument derived from, from Benjamin's, you know, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction that's about how, you know, and this ties very much into what we've been discussing, but, but the way that essentially once art becomes reproducible, it becomes a kind of information like any other, right? It can be, mm -hmm. it, it, it no longer is a unique sort of material object, right? crafted by a particular person instead it becomes an image which is essentially a kind of unit of information that can be circulated and framed in infinite different ways and attached to other pieces of information right and so he he has the example of like the way artworks are used in advertisements and magazines and things like that right yeah and it's so, sort of, the, the production is wonderful i'm remembering that yeah. episode where yeah. he music and he shows you yeah you know the Botticelli and you can you know when you uh kind of you know crop the painting you can tell different stories uh depending on how you're how you're utilizing it um yeah. in a, in a non-museum context yeah so you know he he sort of has a lot of this you know I can see how you can derive a lot of these arguments from his you know kind of views at the time um, and the, the way that he thinks about art in relation to power. But he does also think there's a value in just, you know, looking at, 
and I mean, he also has this scene where basically, and it, it kind of relates to this point about people not feeling confident or feeling like they need some kind of guidance, right? And he has the scene where he shows, um, you know, this Caravaggio painting to a group of children, right? And just has yeah. them talk about it. And he sort of, he sort of argues that, you know, essentially um, you can do this and find that, you know, children, because they haven't been trained to believe there's some kind of knowledge they have to have in order to have a view on art that they can, you know, not just spontaneously talk about it and say whatever, but, but actually will have insights, right? Because they look at it as a sort of, you know, as a, as a kind of, um, you know, as a human document in a sense, right? The, I mean, that's his argument, right? That they can kind of intuitively experience it as a document that connects to experiences they themselves have had, right? And perhaps this is, maybe I'm uh, reasserting some version of empathy, but I don't know. I feel like there's something a little bit more compelling in this because because what he's arguing is that there there's a, a, a way of, of experiencing and apprehending these works that can kind of bypass the, the messaging apparatus, right? <laughs> that's attached to them. And I think it does ultimately, again, I would see him as, despite all of his critiques, still having some kind of sense of the aesthetic as a, as a distinct and autonomous experience. Now, and also he is himself an artist, right? So he's not just, a, he, he's not, you know, merely a sort of critic or whatever, <laughs> not to, you know, not to downgrade that position. But so, you know, I think that's part of it, but I don't know. So perhaps to close it off, I don't know if you have any uh, further thoughts on that. I, I have really tender feelings to, towards Berger. I think he's great. I think, uh, uh, ways of seeing should be it teaches really well um and I don't think you're indoctrinating anyone when you're teaching from ways of seeing I think it's um the book is great the series is really great it's it's pretty dated um and uh but it was it was for a, a general audience I mean as with so many of these things it's kind of amazing that this I think it was on BBC one at the time you know which is just in the BBC, BBC One is just oh, such trash now. Um, uh, and I think you're absolutely right that even though he was a he was a very um, political animal, he was a committed um, socialist. Um, he he also really loved art. Um, he wasn't didactic. Uh, he knew his history of art he had he had extensive and eclectic um uh taste and understanding and then is able to appreciate and respond to works in all sorts of different ways um like like you're describing you know he isn't just looking for um the the historical you know social message of a work what it was um communicating to contemporary audiences about its time um he doesn't he doesn't do that he's a really great counterpoint to the stuff that's going on in museums now because i don't think um he he necessarily did those moralizing readings i think he's more um he's more objective um about um 
or he's more objective in his what are probably a kind of culture his cultural studies approach um if it's fair to say that that's um what he he does at some points in that series but as you say he um he's also interested in other ways of seeing than just that one um and i think he had a really um uh, cultivated formal appreciation of art too, which I think is the, for me, it's like one of the biggest things that's lacking today. Um, and again, um, whether or not young people like are interested in this, the problem is that they're not being taught it. Um, and, you know, I think it's, uh, uh, I know we're so far removed from, you know, new criticism and uh, in, in responding to literature. I think we could do with the bringing back a little bit more of that. They were myopic in their own ways. I mean, the, the extent to which they denied the historical um, resonances within work and uh, kind of fetishized the, the artwork as a, as a standalone thing that just kind of sprung out of the ether, um, I think is a mistake because you, the, any way in which you can derive more meaning and find more interesting things to say and find more ways to appreciate a work of art, the better. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think we want, we want more approaches um, analytical approaches to art rather than fewer. Um, and actually, you know, I'm thinking now about your, um, your question about like middle brow art. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me there's, uh, I don't know where like the, I don't know who's making the interesting work of our time, um, the non-middle brow work, if that's, you know, a fair way to, to describe it. Um, but whoever they're not being supported by the Mellon Foundation, you know, and the MacArthur Foundation, whoever they are. Um, and if they have shows on, they're not going to be reviewed by the New Yorker. Um, uh, but uh, yes, anyway, I think I think the um, I. I think the more ways we respond to artworks, the better. Um, and the dictates that are, that some museums and curators within museums are trying to bring down on us um, for their ways of trying to manage our experiences um, should really piss people off. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised it doesn't piss more people off. Um, so, you know, if if you like read my writing and it makes you, you know, recognize that you've actually had those impulses when you've been in the museum, um, you know, trust yourself a bit more um, that this, this isn't right, what they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, Let's hope it changes and let's scorn and like ridicule those who are doing this shit because they're they're impoverished in some way. Um, I this is like a this is very tangential, but you you just a few days ago published a, a totally unrelated article about um, 
these shootings um, that happened very recently. And I was, um, you know, really, it's a harrowing subject. Um, but I, I, you made reference to transcendental values, I think, in that essay. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've read, I've read a number of things you've written. This was in a different register from other stuff I've written by you. Um, but the fact that you're invoking uh, this uh, sort of absence uh, uh, stood out to me. Um, I know these are these are really mainly completely unrelated phenomena, but um, you yeah, know, I'm but talking again, to it, you. Yeah, I mean, it it does tie into this. You know, the the way that I interpret all of this is really through that loss or that absence, right? That you know, part of what all of this kind of terrible um kind of politicized like copy paste in museums is is sort of filling in for and substituting for you know whatever and 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 also you know is symptomatic of the way that these these institutions don't actually have any coherent values informing what they're doing right yeah. and so um i think that's that might be a good place to leave it. Do you have uh, anything final to add on on this or um, other things to plug that you've written that we haven't gotten to? I don't think so. I'm, uh, it's really fun to talk about this stuff with you. Thanks yeah. for having Thanks. me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on.